real country life and but i think i was always born a bit of a maverick um things were quite clear that i wasn't you know i was I, my head was in the clouds so i was a bit of a dreamer very hyperactive child so i spent most of my time outside um with the cows <laughs> actually they're not my favorite animals <laughs> give me pigs any day but um uh, yeah so uh, the creative side was in me and it came out and unfortunately I had parents who were super open to just let me go for it and I originally thought about being an actor that was really where I thought I was going but as much of life is you know just things start cropping up and coming in the way and it's for a reason and uh, yeah I started dancing and at 15 I left home and went to London to study and then at 18 I got offered a job with this crazy company called Netherlands Dance Theatre and I had no real clue what it was about till I got there and then it was the page turned and there's been no going back since and then. So you've been there for over 30 years. Yeah, I have. Um, what is it about the company and not just the work they create but presumably the culture mm. of the company that has made you stay for that period of time? Because in, in a creative field often people move on after five, six, eight years perhaps yeah. at most. Naturally, I mean... There's something about NDT that's, that's really special. You know, it was a short history lesson. I mean, 1959, there were sort of 20 rebellious dancers who left the classical company at that stage in Holland. And just, they were, they were to be frank, fed up about performing works that they, you know, they were just takers rather than makers. And that's what they wanted to be. They wanted to be creating work on their own bodies with their own emotions and speaking a bit about how they felt as artists. And that was the beginning of NDT, and you could say it's been its core business for the last, well, nearly 60 years. And um, the moment you, I came through the door of the, of the studios, I just, I just knew it was where I wanted to be. I realised that um, I had had a great education, that the Royal Ballet, for instance, where I was uh, heading for, I hoped, was going to be uh, what I wanted. But, I was, you know, it just showed me a new light. And, and the fact that I had also creative ambitions to be a choreographer, it was just the place to be. There was every, every name that you could think of now who's classed as sort of the, the great, the big five, whatever. They were all, they were all uh, at NDT at some stage. So what a marvellous opportunity and uh, yeah fantastic company because we're all classically trained but at the same time we can go many directions and that's, that spectrum is so interesting that's certainly one of the things watching the company perform last night in the three works that are being performed as part of the exclusive season at art center melbourne um, you can see the the line and the thrust of and uh, the the pose of classical ballet, but given much greater vitality and much greater life than, say, in a um, whether it be one of the, the great ballet companies of the world or even kind of just a, a small suburban class somewhere. The, the tell us about that the tension between classicism and contemporary and how that manifests in certainly in your work, for example, because yeah. of the three works being performed here in Melbourne, you've co choreographed two of them. Yes, I mean. Uh, NDT is often, you know, you could say as a metaphor, it's a kind of a bridge. You know, it sits between the two. It's not 
as contemporary and as modern as a lot of people assume modern ballet is going to be. And at the same time, it's definitely not classical. So the idea, I feel, at the moment, particularly what we're trying to do with the company along with the team is to give it that mass- keep that massive spectrum, you know, so that its character is the fact that it doesn't necessarily have clarity about what it's going to do. So every programme that we create in the Netherlands, uh, every time the curtain goes up, the audience aren't quite sure what they're going to get. And I think that's really important, this... I think giving people what they're not expecting is actually a, a, a highly artistic moment. And, and the Netherlands is great in that sense because we've got plenty of room to make mistakes. And I think that's really important in a cultural environment that there has to be that room. So we're supported by the government, by the city, and everybody knows that NDT might go off the tracks. And that's something that I think they value, actually, and, and I love. And, yeah, you meet a lot of people from the classical world because, yeah, dance is an incestuous place, basically. You know, it's a, we all know each other in many different ways. And and um, they look... A lot of classical companies particularly look towards NDT like, oh, you know, it's just... They all strive to that thought of... There's, there's, there's a feeling of... Uh, there's more freedom. There's a kind of liberation within what we do. And um, I think a lot of people do watch the company and... Uh, yeah, it's kind of daunting when you think you've got the responsibility to look after it now and, you know, everyone's looking and, you know, they're expecting. But there is there is something really... Um, it is a bit of an epicentre for what's going on in dance right now and I think that's... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful feeling. We have an amazing, amazing group of artists and that really is where the core lies, is the people within the group. Yeah, and they were beautifully expressive and impressive on stage last night yeah. uh, in the State Theatre at Arts Centre Melbourne. Let's talk about the three works mm. that are presented, starting uh, uh, now, I'm not sure of my, my pronunciation. Go on. Uh, Sehnsucht? Sehnsucht, yeah. Yeah, you did good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what's the uh, what language is that? That's German. That is German. What's yeah. German? Well, um, you know, I, I worked together with uh, Soleon, and uh, she and I created Zainzucht in two thousand and nine. And actually, it's it's the fact I, I found quite beautiful about it. It's a word which is untranslatable um, into English. Anyway, there's only one other language it exists, and that's called Saudade in um, Portuguese. And, and basically, it's it's a, it's a form of an emotion. Sehnsucht is a yearning, I suppose, is close enough. We could get to it. But it isn't really like... If you take the word apart, it's like a searching of the senses. So it's about losing something. It has a nostalgic feel. They say that children cannot have Sehnsucht. For instance, it's something you develop as you grow in life. And I think... I'm a big fan of the German language. A lot of people, you know, due to associations over the years, oh, no, I think it's a fantastic language. And I think um, that word in itself is, is rich with ideas because none of the works that you saw or you would see in the performance are, are narrative in that sense. I could say they're emotionally narrative, but they don't have storylines. So, you, you know, this word for us was highly important. And, yeah, we wanted to basically create two studies, which you've seen, one in a tiny, tiny space which is constantly altering, and, uh, and one in a massive space with a huge group of people, well, huge for us, and, um, you know, to demonstrate those two principles of space and what you do with that, with the passion, with the feelings that you have, and in some way there is a feeling constantly that this is a memory, you know, I think. The, the company was very renowned in the 80s for dancing big group works with individuals in it, and it's something we haven't, you know, it's sort of moved away from that. So Zainzok sort of harks back to that period. It's a little bit ironic, a bit of irony in there. And to use Beethoven was also kind of crazy, you know, one of the fathers of music. So. It was one of the things that struck me watching it was I'm aware with some friends, for example, they're nervous about contemporary dance uh, because there's no clear narrative for them. And I'll mm. always say, well, find your own narrative in the work yeah. or just 
enjoy the movement, enjoy the patterns that the bodies are making and, and the physicality and so forth. But one of the things that struck me watching it was that uh, it could be read in, in some degree as not a commentary on the asylum seeker crisis in Europe, for example, but there were certainly aspects and elements of that and the yearning for home being locked outside, yeah. uh, then a, a sense of militarism perhaps engaging in the, yeah, in the yeah. group movement later in the piece. So, But this is what happens with the works. I mean, you get so many interpretations. And actually, I was reflecting myself on it last night about the whole programme and I felt myself uh, saying exactly what you're saying. I think all three pieces had something to do with the same theme and that was obviously about environment and I was talking about that too. I made a little speech. I was a bit drunk and uh, you just said, you know, that we're, we're living in a mad world right now. You know, it's going crazy and I think that there is so much um, this, this, you, you, we're seeing cultures that are turning into fear-based Quite, quite a lot, I feel, and that, that's, I think, you know, the, when people are different, it starts to become something threatening nowadays, and people are so concerned about their national identity, and, and yet I think there's so much to engage in all of that, and I think dance theatre in its, in, its, in its small way is trying to say it, it can be quite beautiful, because we have such a range of nationalities. I have dancers who with crazy stories from all over the world, and yet we come together and we make something beautiful, and I think there is, there is, there is something very poetic to say about the individual within a group and also the, something very beautiful to say about all the individuals working together. And I think Zanes does carry that a lot, but actually all three pieces. Yeah, uh, the second piece, Solo Echo, which yeah. kind of like exquisite kind of snow falling. And, uh, all the Aussies, you hear them be like, ah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yearning for some snow. No, it's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. And, it is. Um, and, but then for me, Stop Motion, uh, mm. the, the third and final piece of the night, mm. was truly exquisite. I was kind of tearing up watching it just because it was so sublimely beautiful. Mm, thank you. In terms of uh, restaging a, a work anywhere in the world, you've made it um, with certain... You've been influenced by certain events, certain moods in your life. Yeah. Uh, you create the work on the body of the dancers. They then have to replicate your emotion in some way on a, a distant stage on the opposite side of the world. Yeah. How challenging is it to to capture perfectly or recapture perfectly the original tone you were striving for in in movement in music in structure and staging of a work when it's been remade on the other side of the world i think that um the uh, one of the very beautiful things about stop motion right now is that you have uh, the original cast performing it you know we create a work and it's natural those those some members leave some stay we made it in 2014 uh, oh, I missed one person, uh, unfortunately, due to injury. Uh, but I had uh, the whole original cast was there. And it is so good to watch this piece for me because there are points when a ballet stops being a ballet. You know, they, they, these, these eight people have taken the work and they own it in all senses that and you guide them and you give them imagery as much as possible in every place and yes indeed what I mean we, we basically take the environment apart around them while they perform it and so everywhere you go it's a different feeling it's a different story and you expose you take away the, the shell and uh, of, of you know the, the facade of it all and yet they keep going and their spirit is strong, and that w it was a very emotional piece for us to make, and I think that rings through. We also used our own daughter in some of the video footage. You've seen this uh, woman who's, well, young woman who's constantly moving, and that's our, that's our daughter in there, and she herself was in this moment of transformation, which is basically what the whole piece is about. It's about transformation. 
Netherlands Dance Theatre are performing exclusively at Arts Centre Melbourne. Um, I Certainly, I already know people from interstate who either have flown down for last night or are flying down to see the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must be daunting to be the artistic director of a company with such a reputation that people will travel vast distances to come and see them. It is. Don't say it. <laughs> Help! No, uh, it's... It is, it is daunting, but at the same time you have to put that aside because this, you know, you've got to keep your feet on the ground and this kind of responsibility that I take, I, I don't take lightly and I don't take alone. I have a fantastic group of people around me and I don't like to work with people who, who aren't 150% engaged with the, the idea of what we're doing. So be it uh, from every department of the theatre, we're a creative bunch of people and, uh, yeah, great team around and give me lots of support because... I, frankly, I'm, I'm I'm quite a mess, you know, and uh, and I think it, it's maybe good too. I think it's part of it. I think you know you have to be able to dream and mess about and and be a fool as well as you know try and take some proper decisions in a day. But um, yeah, we all work together, and I and that sounds very cliche, but it's it's the truth, you know, and that's the only way it can work for us at NDT. Art Centre Melbourne and the Bank of Melbourne are presenting Netherlands Dance Theatre exclusively at Art Centre Melbourne in the State Theatre on now uh, the final. It's, uh, a short season finishes this Saturday the 25th uh, and there is a post-show Q&A uh, this Saturday after the matinee performance so uh, that would definitely be one to get along to and I believe you're also running some masterclasses. Oh yeah, there's that. workshops and masterclasses going on so yeah. Yeah, we always try and engage as much as we can in the short time we're here. So a legacy as well as just the performances <laughs> themselves. Um, if you would like to get along to see Netherlands Dance Theatre at Art Centre Melbourne uh, then uh, jump online artcentremelbourne.com.au or phone 1300 183. I highly recommend it. We've been speaking to the company's artistic director, Paul Lightfoot. Paul, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Interpol. I'm Carlos from Interpol. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> As you'll be all too aware, there is a federal election being held on the 2nd of July. There's lots of parties um, putting different ideas forward. Last week on this program, we heard from Adam Bant, the arts spokesperson for the Greens, talking about the Greens arts policies. Next week, uh, we'll be hearing from Mark Dreyfus, the shadow minister for the arts, uh, Labor's arts spokesperson, about their policies. I've been chasing uh, uh, Mitch Fifield, Senator Mitch Fifield, uh, a Victorian senator, who is the Minister for the Arts trying to get him on the show to talk about uh, the Coalition's arts policy. They don't have any. Um, uh, This week, we are joined on the line by the leader of a relatively new independent party whose name, I think, tells you a lot about who they are and what they want. Uh, They're called the Arts Party, and uh, PJ Collins joins us on the line. PJ, good morning. Good morning, Richard. (laughs) So, uh, why create a new political party which is, as some people would see it, a single-issue party focused specifically on art and culture and its place within Australian society? Uh, Well, I think that... um yeah, I think the name would make you think immediately it was just a single issue. I think it's more of a headspace than a single issue. I mean, the obviously, support for the arts is at the core of what we stand for, but we're essentially about a more creative, cultural and educated life for every Australian. So it's, it's essentially what we're applying is the sort of sensibility of the arts into our politics, and we, just, we really feel it needs that in this country. Um, it's simply just not recognised enough and supported enough, and uh, frankly, we've got more than 
than enough lawyers, accountants and lobbyists in our parliaments. It would be great to have an artistic voice and an artistic temperament in there as well to try and maybe help get a bit more consensus, maybe help get a bit more working together, trying to, you know, find some win-win solutions instead of this forever, you know, you're, you're wrong, I'm right scenario we're seeing on the TV all the time between the major parties. Now, certainly already you've been getting some high-profile supporters throwing their weight behind the party, the likes of Margaret Pomeranz, John Jarrett, Brian Brown, uh, Ben Quilty and others. Uh, how do you rate the party's chances at the election on the 2nd of July? Well, you know, like, uh, there, there was two uh, focus for, for doing this, and the first one was, of course, to make arts an issue at this election. I mean, there's, there's organisations around the country that have been working to, to, to do that as well as us, but we've definitely helped that process because it is an issue. The, the cuts that have happened over the last couple of years in Australia are shocking, and the, the damage they've done to community organisations in particular, to the you know, grassroots organisations, is, is just completely overlooked because people don't realise what's happening. So we really needed to make sure that it was on the table, that it was completely unacceptable. And, I, you know, I think that we've really helped to, in that process. So that's brilliant. Um, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, beyond that, for us to actually get somebody elected would be you know, the absolute cherry on the top of the cake. Um, that is obviously uphill. I mean, you know, it's so hard to get any kind of promo or, or um, coverage. And, you know, it's just for a huge country. So the bottom line is that, you know, this is at the very beginning of what we're trying to do with this party. And I think, um, I think we've had a great beginning already. I'm, no, I'm under no illusions that the chances of us getting anyone up is, is uh, going to be tough. But even so, at the voting point, we can still reinforce the whole message by collecting as many votes as we can. You know, and the beauty is that with the Senate set up, people can vote for the arts. And then, of course, preference whatever other parties they want after, including a major, so that their vote, if we don't get somebody up, still matters, still counts towards their normal major party. But they can vote smarter by really supporting the arts on July the 2nd by giving a one to the arts, basically. Let's talk about specifically now some of the policies uh, that the Arts Party have, uh, one of which has already been uh, adopted by the Greens, I understand. Yes, isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, we're the only party that basically sends all their policies to every other party and asks them to steal them, basically, or, or adopt them would be a better word. word. And so actually quite a few have. The Greens had the, um, you know, had the... The, the gumption and, you know, and consideration of actually crediting us for it, which is fantastic. But the bottom line is we've got parties now across the country, whether it be Nick Xenophon or the Pirate Party, they're all coming up with their own arts policies. They never had arts policies before. I mean, I think that says something about this election, about what's been going on, that, you know, across the board, you know, people are taking the arts seriously for a change. And, you know, that's, a, that was, that's the, the mission of this, this party, you know, it's, it's number one aim in this election. So, you know, that's great. And so I'm very happy for them to steal more of our ideas, basically. They just help themselves. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the idea that the Greens have, uh, have borrowed, shall we say, is the notion of a National Arts Week, a seven-day opportunity to highlight, celebrate, participate in and experience the arts in every form. We have a National mm. Science Week. There's an, a huge ongoing focus in Australia on sport. So to have one week which is dedicated to and celebrating art, that certainly works for me. Um, some of the other ideas that the Arts Party are advocating... For 
free entry to all government-funded museums and galleries up to the age of 21 and over the age of 65, which I think is a great idea, When, particularly when some of the, the big blockbuster exhibitions, we've got Degas coming to Melbourne as part of the Melbourne Winter Masterpieces, for example. The notion of free access to that for, for children to inspire them uh, is yeah. a great idea. The placement of artists in residence in primary and secondary schools across the company uh, th- uh, by expanding the existing chaplains program. Let's talk about that one in a little more detail. Yeah, well, look, the, um, uh, the, the chaplains program exists. That's just that's the fact. So basically, we, we look in terms of our, our approach always is like, how can we make things better? We're, we're, you know, it's like, um, and to us, to, you know, well, we're not, well, we certainly don't, we're not supporting chaplains in schools. The idea of artists in schools is fantastic. But why don't we increase the breadth of this idea, give schools the option of choosing whether they want a chaplain or they want an artist, you know, and basically build on top of an existing system so that, you know, there, there's this other option there. And I think that, you know, it would be a wonderful thing to essentially, you know, introduce, like, working artists in residence in schools across the country and make arts and, you know, and the sort of arts discipline and arts practice something that's visible and understood by people best starting in the schools. I mean, there's no doubt at all that the biggest changes that we can make to the future of this country are about how we change the education system. And so... You know, it goes way, you know, we want mandatory music education for all primary school children. And, you know, and, I, and the, the artists in residence program, it's again, I think it would just be an amazing influence it would, for the teachers, for the parents, for the students. It, would, it just would just change a whole headspace around, you know, what art and what an art practice actually means and, and you know, how it fits into the community. Because we're all about community, basically. It's all about supporting and building, you know, our lives together. So... Yeah, basically, I, I would love to see that happen. But, you know, the idea of piggybacking on top of, of an existing program, you, you know, is, makes sense to us. <laughs> it's rather than um, trying to make up a brand new one, why don't we just expand and improve something that, uh, frankly, is, you know, uh, doesn't, isn't, isn't really, uh, I don't think, um, good enough right now. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with PJ Collins, who's the leader of the Arts Party, and you can find out more about the party, their ideas and policies at www.artsparty.org. Now, a couple of people listening, I'm sure, will be saying, well, PJ, these ideas are all well and good enough, but how are you going to pay for them? And... Of course, the response to that is that the Arts Party do have uh, some uh, ideas and structures around uh, contributing more money to the, ecolog- to the economy in order to support an arts ecology. One of those, for example, is the notion of resurrecting the idea of an arts lottery. Tell us more. Absolutely. And when I go, um, in, in historically, you know, when you look back to when the Sydney Opera House was built, it was paid for primarily through a lottery. And it had that ability of, and I, I've seen the same thing back in the UK, um, where the, the, uh, the, the National Lottery in the UK pays for huge amounts of uh, arts and cultural and film work in the, in, in the country. And, you know, it's funny, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> you know, it gives ownership to institutions back to, you know, the individuals to the, to, you know, normal people. People go, I mean, I, I went back to visit some family last year and, you know, I ended up going to the, the Tate uh, Gallery 
and basically the cabbie was saying, you know, that's that's our gallery, <laughs> because it was like massively paid for through a lottery system. And the truth is that you know, basically you have to look for novel ways of of uh, you know basically getting money in. I mean, there are other ideas we have. We ended up listing like uh, enough to, to to collect or save 22 billion dollars. I mean, way more than we're suggesting spending on, you know, Australian arts and culture. I mean, but the bottom line is, I think, uh, that, you know, it's the, tra the challenge with the lottery in this country, I think, is that we've sold the rights off to so many different companies, and um, whether we can create another one. But I, I you know, it's, I think it would be a wonderful thing that to be given an option, you could, you could be powerballing for the arts. I mean, why not? You know, at least you know the money you're spending is going back into your communities and into your actual. You know, you're, you know, the cultural and artistic life of this country, rather than just going off into some, you know, bank account for, a, you know, a multinational, basically. Now, the election is not far away, thank goodness, many people will say, because it's been a, a long, drawn-out and often tedious election campaign. Um, you're standing three Senate candidates in Victoria, and there's also, a, um, I think you've got a lower house candidate in uh, uh, the seat of Dunkley in Victoria as well. So, uh, again, if people listening would like to know more about who is standing for the Arts Party and what they represent, uh, jump online, www.artsparty.org. PJ, just to wrap up, once the election is over, regardless of which party wins, will the Arts Party continue to stand candidates in both local, state, federal elections in the years to come? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we didn't exist two years ago. We only exist because of uh, crowdfunding uh, or popular support of people basically, you know, putting their hand in their pocket saying this is a great thing, we want to see it in this democracy. So I think that the... Uh, the focus, well, directly after this election for us is going to be registration properly as a state party across the country. And then the focus, number one, actually is local elections. So uh, I think that having candidates uh, on councils across the country, you know, arts candidates, when we, you know, at the moment you have Labour, Liberal, Green or Independence. I mean, an arts can uh, candidate, in, or, you know, an arts councillor is basically prioritising community, prioritising engagement and, uh, you know, the sharing of creativity and culture in their community and putting people number one, you know, and I think that that would be a wonderful thing, a wonderful option um, to make a real grassroots changes and that's, uh, that's the future for us, I think. I mean, federal parliament is a massive challenge, but I, literally in, directly in communities across the country, we can have such a, make such a difference and it'd be a great, great voice for bringing people together and, you know, and making communities better. So I think it's, it's a very exciting future we've got ahead of us and, you know, that's it. I mean, it's, uh, no, no, we're here to stay, so it's very exciting, isn't it? Excellent. Um, as I said, you can learn more about the Arts Party and their policies at www.artsparty.org. We've been speaking to the party's leader, PJ Collins. PJ, thanks very much for your time this morning. Cheers. Thank you. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Minipal. I'm Carlos from Minipal. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> My next guest has joined me in the studio. She is Kelly Galatley, the director of the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne. Kelly, how are you going? Good morning. I'm really well. Excellent. Now, there's an exhibition on at the moment that's caught my eye because Max de Payne, the photographer, really well known, kind of that iconic image of, of the sunbather uh, is like it's a quintessentially Australian image. People know that and because of that they know his name. But he collaborated 
with shared a, a studio with New Since Childhood. Another photographer, Olive Cotton, who I don't think many people know about at all. No, it's it's really interesting. I think those immersed in the history of Australian photography know Olive Cotton's work well. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, Max Dupain had a kind of meteoric career in terms of, you know, being being considered one of the kind of forefathers of contemporary Australian photography and, and sort of someone who was really pushing an Australian vision through his work. Uh, but Olive Cotton really doesn't come into the public imagination until the early 1980s. There was a show called... A, a monumental show called Australian Women Photographers coincidentally at the George Payton Gallery at, at the university in, in the early 80s. And it's at that stage as part of that kind of restorative um, historical curatorial practice that her work is is sort of rediscovered. But even since that time, um, there's there's been a few very important exhibitions of her work, but not enough. And, and in bringing them together, um, you really do see both... For those who know her work, um, you, you sort of have an opportunity to reassess, but you also see Max Dupain's work in a very different light when it's brought together with her work. Why do you think she's not as well known by the public? Is it just because she is a woman and, and kind of it, for so throughout the 20th century the work of women was sidelined or overshadowed by the work of men? Uh, partly, but it's also... Uh, life choices. So uh, Max and Olive, as you touched on, um, they were childhood friends uh, They and they started working together in, in the late 20s, about 1928. Um, sorry, they, they, they sort of, you know, they became romantically involved at that stage as well. They then get married in 1939. They have a very brief marriage of two years, but they continue to work together and um, Olive Cotton manages Max Dupain's studio when he goes off to war. Uh, but uh, once he returns to Australia in, in 1945, um, she sort of steps away from the studio and moves to Cowra with her uh, second husband and has this extraordinarily isolated life. She runs a very small photographic studio in Cowra. They lived in a tent for years, they had no running water or electricity. So com- completely different existence to this sort of cosmopolitan, um, quite edgy um, time in Sydney. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so in some ways, whether it was a conscious choice or not, she, she sort of stepped out um, and, and, you know, love and life and family took over and I suppose that in, in those times you, you had to make a choice. Um, whereas, you know, Max Payne continues on and was such an in- influential force on other um, Australian photographers of different generations that his name and work continued. Yeah. So OK. Now, so the exhibition uh, is focusing on work created by the pair between 1934 and 1945. And often, kind of, when they were creating very similar work. They were shooting the same models, for example, or the same objects and structures and buildings. And so this exhibition then presents an opportunity to see that work side by side. Absolutely. And it's the first time that it's happened, which is quite incredible. Um, I I find it really interesting because I think in, you know, we have a natural aversion to 
to laying too much, you know, at the at the um, base of biography. You know that that becomes a way of reading imagery. But it's hard not to, in this very intense period for both of their lives, think about the intersections of the way they were working side by side. Um, interestingly, Olive wasn't producing a lot of work for the Depain Studio. She was the studio manager, so the work that she's creating at the time, when they're effectively both in the studio, she's doing in her own time. So there's also a sense too, it's a bit like the the female painter working at the kitchen table, uh, you know, not to denigrate her in any way. But when you look at some of the imagery from that time when Max Dupain was around before he goes off and she becomes the manager of the studio, she's often working at night um, where the light is quite different. So you're getting related imagery, certainly shared concerns, but, but there is a... a quite a marked difference to their work um she they both share uh they they um were really um strong admirers of of um harold Kasno, a photographer of a slightly earlier generation you can see those kind of pictorialist photography um influences in their work this sort of dappled light a, a sense of patterning and and the way that light and shade can be really played up um in photography but then they really start to push it and you, and you see the shift to a, a kind of more modernist sensibility and them looking directly at international photographers like andre Cortez and leslie moholinaji and the way in which they start to play a lot with um Viewpoints that so German new photography starts to influence them looking from a bird's eye or, or a kind of worm's eye perspective. So there's a lot of that kind of international influence at play in their work, and but always very Australian. It's interesting. You look at a lot of these images and you think, wow, that could only be taken in Sydney. There's something about the quality of the light and the sharpness of the shadows. And it's interesting, the, the dominance of shadow in their work... Absolutely. Looking at yeah. so many of, of these works, there's a. It's it's not as if I'm. It's not like they've they've gone. Oh, German expressionism kind of and and recreated it in any way. But it's interesting to 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 see kind of given that we associate one of the things we associate with art in Australia is about the quality of the light. Mm. They've almost inverted that and focused on the the sharpness of the shadows and the deepness of the shadows in some of these images. Oh, absolutely. That's that's a really good point because they were concerned with photography as a medium they so they're they're really looking at and trying to tussle with and push what photography at that time could do and and what it could say about a sort of contemporary australian practice so you know really interesting and you get across the the breadth of the show it's quite a large exhibition there's 72 works in in the show um you're getting um early forays in into a kind of surrealist um, sensibility. Um, you you also see them working outdoors, as you've said, um, and also the early advertising photography that that the studio was doing. A lot of Dupain's images that time were uh, reproduced in the Home magazine, the Sydney U. Smith publication. So you really also get a sense of what a photographic studio had to do at that time in the country. That it wasn't that you just produced images and and showed it. You know. 
the Art Gallery of New South Wales, no such, you know, entree for photography at that stage. It was a, a working job and you pushed within the realms of that. And I think that's why they're also really both interesting. And one of the other things about the exhibition that intrigues is obviously they were photographing one another as well. So they're not just working side by side and in a relationship together at points, but they're using one another as models as well. Absolutely. There's some extraordinary photographs of both of them. Um, particularly the image uh, Max after surfing is a real highlight. My goodness me. Um, it's a beautiful photograph. Um, and and also that was... I, I worked uh, very briefly, um, and I think it's why this exhibition is, is dear to my heart, I worked very briefly at the National Gallery in Canberra um, in the Australian Photography Department at the time that those images were... Um, Vintage images were discovered in Olive Cotton's studio, well, in her estate. And I remember with excitement these incredible works being offered to the gallery and thinking, oh, my God, you know, they, they changed um, my understanding of, of what they were photographing um, and, and, the, and the kind of... Um, uh, I think they were very clear about the intimacy of their relationship at that time, at a time where, you know, they weren't married. Um, <gasps> Shocking and me. shameless. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the exhibition that we're discussing, uh, The Photographic Life of Olive Cotton and Max de Payne, uh, is on at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne until the 24th of July. Uh, it uh, kicked off on the 31st of May. What's the public response to the work been like? Do you, I mean, given that you're the, the, the gallery director, do you kind of like quietly eavesdrop on conversations? Just oh, you bet. That's the best <laughs> part. <laughs> I have to remember not to wear shoes that's kind of clunk on the wooden floorboards, particularly in that space, because it, I think when you're very comfortable in a space, it becomes clear to members of the general public that you feel quite at home in it as you So the conversations stop. But I do... Um, sneak up and listen to what people are saying. I think what's really interesting with exhibitions such as this, um, there is such an appetite for um, sort of, for want of a better term, pure photography exhibitions on the part of the public. Uh, we're very comfortable now with seeing photography represented in a wealth of contemporary art shows and that's absolutely fantastic. But this this ability to look back and assess um, photographic practice over a a pretty concise period, really, just seven years, is a is a real um, treat, and we've had it's been really well received. And are there kind of floor talks or anything like that coming up between now and the twenty fourth of July? Oh, there you go. I didn't bring those with me. I will be testing my memory, but I believe we, we've got a terrific forum coming up on the sixteenth of July. Um, I'd encourage everyone to check the Potter website, unless I'm not correct. Um, and that's a great opportunity to hear from um, the respective Max Dupain and Olive Cotton experts. So we'll have Helen Ennis from the School of Art in Canberra, who is currently working on a biography of Olive Cotton. Um, Dr Isabel Crombie, uh, Deputy Director of the NGV, who did a PhD on Max Dupain, and the curator of the exhibition, um, Sean Lakin, from the National Gallery of Australia. So, so that's, great. that's a free forum uh, just entitled Max and Olive, Saturday the 16th of July from 2 till 4pm. Uh, and uh, the exhibition itself, Max and Olive, the photographic life of Olive Cotton and Max Payne, on now until the 24th of July at the Ian Potter Museum of Art, the University of Melbourne. Uh, just get off the tram at the terminus on Swanson Street and you're basically there. More info at www.art-museum www.unimelb.edu.au Kelly Galatley, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. My pleasure, thanks. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, 
documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.